focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio today, we have our reporters in Kim Min-ji and Young, uh, Jung Ye-in. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. Good evening to you guys. Um, today, we're going to start things off with some devastating news coming out from Morocco. Uh, I'm sure all of our listeners have seen the updates from the weekend. Uh, a major earthquake uh, struck Morocco and the ancient city of Marrakesh. Uh, killed and injured thousands of people. And unfortunately, in cases like this, uh, the death toll is expected to rise further. Minji, you're going to start us off with the deadly earthquake over Morocco. Let's get the latest situation over there. Sure. So last uh, late Friday night, a powerful earthquake struck Morocco and killed more than 2,100 people and injured over 2,400. The toll is expected to rise as yet rescuers are struggling to get through the boulder-strung roads to the remote mountain villages to reach hard-hit remote areas to find survivors. It was a 6.8 magnitude earthquake, the biggest to hit Morocco in 120 years. And according to Morocco's Interior Ministry, most damage occurred outside of cities and towns, mostly in Marrakesh and five provinces near the epicenter. Buildings and homes in mountains, villages, and ancient cities were not built to withstand such force, which turned them into rubbles. On Sunday, the United States Geological Survey issued a red alert for economic losses as a result of the earthquake. The agency said that the extensive damage is probable and disaster is likely widespread. The estimated economic losses are up to 2% of Morocco's gross domestic product. As rescue efforts continue, the Morocco government declared a three-day national mourning period on Saturday and ordered shelter, food, drinking water, and other help for the survivors. Foreign aid is also coming into the country, and Turkey, which also went through a deadly earthquake that killed more than 50,000 people in February, is one of the countries providing aid to Morocco. The United States has also sent a team of disaster experts to assess the situation and identify the humanitarian needs. Again, uh, Morocco, and especially the ancient city of Marrakesh, and I'm sure for our listeners out there, if any of you guys are big-time travelers, uh, Marrakesh is actually... Uh, a popular destination uh, among travelers and uh, it was actually one of those places that I've always wanted to travel to uh, ever since uh, seeing Andrew Zimmern's uh, Bizarre Foods but uh, a lot of those places despite the fact that it's a big touristy area a lot of the areas like Minji said there's a lot of mountainous areas there's mountainous neighborhoods uh, a lot of places that are built on stone uh, built with stones and so they're not built to withstand an earthquake that has a magnitude of 6.8 which is why I think a lot of people were we're having talks with our staff members and when we saw the initial numbers 2100 we thought it was just casualties meaning that both injuries and deaths combined but death alone is 2100 and it's very concerning and as now that number is going to further rise uh, we also have concerns over the safety uh, of Korean community in Morocco. Anytime there's uh, earthquakes, major earthquakes, or any na natural disasters happening overseas, uh, we also cover news on the Koreans there uh, because it's reported that 77 Koreans who are visiting the country for the 10th International Conference on UNESCO Global Geoparks took part in it. Now, fortunately, no Koreans were reported amongst the casualties. Uh, Yane, let's get the latest on this. Sure. So it was around on their fifth day in Morocco when Korean delegates to the Global 
Global Geoparks Conference were faced with the powerful earthquake. Now, currently, out of 77 Koreans visiting the conference, including members of Jeju World Natural Heritage Center and those working for parks in regions such as Chungbuk or Gyeongbuk provinces, uh, no injury case uh, has been reported and dozens have departed from the country to return to Korea. Now, in this week-long event, uh, the delegates initially aimed to participate in promotion activities for Jeju Geopark and strengthen their network with geoparks around the world, eventually receiving recreditation as a global geopark. Now, all of the domestic participants were staying in the new city center of Marrakesh, Morocco, uh, when the earthquake struck mostly the old city center and mountain areas late night on the 8th. Though the new city center experienced less damage, the hotel where some of the Korean delegates were staying shook violently and walls were cracked partially collapsing and forcing guests to rush outside. Now, the Embassy of the Republic of Korea in Morocco says it has not yet received any reports of damage to Koreans uh, from the earthquake, and, but uh, as there are communication issues in some areas, the embassy will keep a close eye on the safety of around 360 local Korean residents in Morocco. That's right, and as I mentioned before, Marrakesh, despite being a, I mean, maybe because it is an ancient city, it lures in more tourists that we'll, we'll try to get more information on whether not there were any Korean tours, but most importantly, we'll keep a close tab on the situation over in Morocco uh, with more updates on this. Uh, let's move on here. Last week uh, was certainly a very ba- uh, busy week for President Yoon Sung Yar as he took part in a number of diplomatic meetings, uh, summits, uh, the ASEAN-related summits over in Jakarta, Indonesia. He took part in the G20 uh, summit over in New Delhi, India. Well, during the G20 summit, uh, it was there that President Yoon Sung Yar uh, pledged to provide more financial support uh, totaling to a 2.3 billion US dollars uh, for Ukraine's U- recovery from its ongoing war. Uh, short-term support and mid to long-term support will also be provided. Uh, Minja, let's get more on this. Yes, so South Korean President Yoon suk yeol returned home today after visiting Indonesia and India to attend ASEAN and G20 summits. And speaking at the G20 summit in New Delhi on Sunday, he pledged to provide an additional 2.3 billion US dollars in aid for Ukraine for its war recovery efforts. So South Korea will provide 300 million US dollars in 2024 in the form of humanitarian aid in the short term, covering development cooperation with the participation of international organizations such as the World Bank and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. The remaining 2 billion US dollars will be provided in the form of mid to long term low interest loans through the Economic Development Cooperation Fund, the EDCF, starting in 2025. For reference, South Korea launched the EDCF program in 1987 with the purpose of supporting economic and social infrastructure projects in developing countries. And previously, President Yoon in July engaged in a surprise meeting in Kyiv with U- Ukrainian leader Vladimir Zelensky and promised to come up with official development assistance to help Ukraine rebuild its war-torn nation. A presidential official said this demonstrates Seoul's responsible role in leading the way to support the restoration of peace as a global pivotal state that contributes to freedom 
peace and prosperity in the world, while also laying the foundation for full-scale participation in Ukraine's reconstruction in the future. Yeah, I mean, even though it was uh, during the previous Moon administration, and I think it was uh, former President Moon Jae-in who said this, uh, it was during the Moon administration when uh, Korea went from becoming a developing country to a developed country. And uh, I believe at the time, Korea was the only, if not one of the few countries that went from developing to developed, uh, according to, I guess, the definition from the IMF. Uh, and so one of the things that I believe uh, former President Moon Jae-in had said was that as a country that used to be a, a recipient country and a developing country and now a developed country, uh, one of the core responsibilities for the country is to now help those that are still developing countries, right? And Ukraine, I believe, uh, according to the definition by the IMF, IMF has categorized Ukraine as a developing country. And so war or not war, and especially during a wartime situation, I think it is uh, one of the roles as a developed country, South Korea continues to help uh, Ukraine there. Uh, also on the sidelines of the G20 summit in New Delhi, you have President Yoon uh, sitting down with his uh, Indian counterpart and Prime Minister Narendra Modi uh, as key strategic partners. They agreed to deepen cooperation in space, defense, and infrastructure. And I think all the more important because India really has been ramping up their space uh, industries there. Yang, let's talk, tell us more about this. Sure. So South Korean President Yoon suk yeol and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi have agreed to cooperate uh, as uh, as Jay said, key strategic partners within the Indo-Pacific region. Now, the leaders held a bilateral meeting on Sunday on the sidelines of the G20 summit in New Delhi as the two countries marked the 50th anniversary of their diplomatic ties. According to Senior Presidential Secretary on Economic Affairs, Choi Sang-mo, the summit's focus was on expanding the balance in trade, investment in digital and green industries, and advanced technologies while expanding public-private cooperation. Now, among the key sectors uh, will be space on the back of South Korea's successful launch of its first homegrown space rocket, Nuri, in May, and also India having made history by becoming the first country to land on the lunar South Pole region. The official says that the two countries will push for space cooperation between South Korea's soon-to-be-launched space agency as well as India's space agency, which already boasts 50 years of history. Now, on the defense front, uh, Yoon and Modi agreed on South Korea's continued provision of its K-9 howitzer and to expand their arms trade, and they also expect more ac active business exchanges between the countries with the easing of customs procedures under the expected launch of an electronic certificates of origin platform this year. Also, under a $4 billion development cooperation fund by South Korea, uh, domestic companies are expected to take part in more of India's infrastructure projects like smart cities. Uh, the talk came after President Yoon also meeting with Korean companies there and vowed to address uh, their concerns to uh, Prime Minister Modi, such as uh, uh, India's recent export restrictions on electronic devices, high tariffs on food, and lack of infrastructure projects for companies to be part of. Yeah, and as I mentioned uh, last week, if South Korea, along with uh, the United States and maybe some of the other Western countries as well, want to de 
risk from China. I think they're saying that uh, India might be that next destination where they could fit, uh, uh, put in a lot of manufacturing plants instead of in China and in India. Uh, but again, that's a, a long-term project moving forward here. Um, as we all expected, of course, marking the 75th anniversary of its founding day over in North Korea, that was September 9th. Uh, North Korea, as they always do, and I've mentioned this before, they've always put emphasis on every five and 10 years, 75, obviously, divisible by five here. They're going to do something special. They did hold a military parade over in the capital Pyongyang. It's the third one of its kind this year alone. Uh, there was a number of major uh, events that took place in uh, North Korea. Let's talk about the latest military parade. Minji, you have more on this. Yes, so September 9th marked the 75th anniversary of North Korea Museum Founding Day, and its leader Kim Jong-un celebrated it early Saturday by staging a parade of its paramilitary civil defense forces in the capital of Pyongyang. The North State Media, Korea Central News Agency, the KCNA, reported that Kim observed the parade at the Kim Il-sung Square. The military parade came a day after North Korea launched what it claimed to be a newly built tactical nuclear attack submarine and and if proved to be true, it is capable of carrying out an underwater nuclear attack. The weapons paraded on Saturday were somewhat uh, humble, so photos released by the KCNA showed rows of tractors towing what appears to be rocket launchers and red dump trucks that were modified to hide missile launchers in front of visiting delegations from China and Russia. So this is already the third military parade of this year alone, following similar events in February and July, and it is the first time under Kim Jong-un's leadership that North Korea has held three military parades within a single year. A series of military parades appear to be emphasizing the militia components of North Korea's military and readiness of war in an attempt to demonstrate that the North Korea's ability to counterattack a foreign invasion. Yeah, and I mean, it's... It has a number of meanings. I, th I think this year had especially a lot of these uh, anniversaries where it was like it was divisible by fives and tens and things like that. But what some of the North Korean experts are also saying is right now, because combined with the pandemic and they're still coping from all the mm -hmm. devastating impacts of the pandemic, although they still refuse to admit that there was any kind of COVID-19 uh, cases, not to mention every time uh, during the monsoon season, there's always a lot of flooding going on and it impacts the agriculture. And so right now they're saying... North Korea is at a worse state, if not worse or as bad as how things were during the arduous march in the early 90s is what they're saying. And so one of the ways to kind of rile up the people of North Korea is by holding these massive military parades to show that, listen, despite what may be going on internally here in South Korea, we are a great country. We have all this and we are going to showcase to the rest of the world. And you guys are going to you know, follow through and stuff like that. But again... There's going to be a whole lot of emphasis on the military equipments, especially because uh, the, the, I guess, the tighter alliance that we're seeing right now with South Korea, the U.S. and Japan as well. But here's the, what's interesting about the, the recent parade on Saturday is that it only consisted of civil defense force, right? So like North Korea didn't feature any new or strategic weapons like the, the ICBMs that they usually uh, showcase. They, they'll usually put the Hwasong-18 ICBM there. So what is the significance about the, uh, the recent military parade then? 
Well, unlike previous military parades, this one appears to have diplomatic significance. So China and Russia show support as North Korea's regime backers, and China's vice premier, Liu Kozong, was present at the military parade, and Russia, on the other hand, sent its military orchestra to Pyongyang. So both Chinese and Russian presidents sent letters about strengthening its ties with North Korea, and according to a North Korean expert, showcasing foreign delegation in North Korea's military parade is not something that is common. So the latest parade indicates that North Korea's attempts to enhance the regime backers against the strengthening security collaboration with South Korea, U.S. and Japan. Yeah, I guess it wouldn't make sense if you like, for example, showcase the ICBMs and go, guys, this is the ICBMs that you guys are using the veto powers for on the, all those UNSC resolution meetings and so forth. So thank you very much. We can continue to fire these missiles because we won't get any kind of new UN Security Council resolutions thanks to your veto power. So yeah, so diplomatic <laughs> maybe it would not be smart to uh, showcase their uh, ICBM technology I guess uh, with growing attention focused on this growing relations uh, with North Korea and Russia uh, we've been talking about these reports that uh, uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, we're going to be holding talks to potentially talk about some sort of arms deal which obviously Seoul and Washington has really really slammed and criticized here uh, we do have some I guess uh, information in regards to this but before we get to this uh, we know that the South Korean foreign minister in Park Jin uh, met with his Russian counterpart uh, this on the 10th on Sunday local time on the sidelines of the G20 summit in New Delhi. Uh, Yane, let's first get more on this. Of course. So the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, shared this news that uh, this morning actually that South Korean foreign minister Park Jin had a meeting with Russian foreign minister Sergei Lav uh, Lavrov yesterday uh, and uh, there in the the meeting, he emphasized that relations between Russia and North Korea should be built in a way that contributes to peace and stability on the Korean Peninsula and in the Northeast Asian region while complying with UN Security Council resolutions. Now, uh, Park also called for Russia's constructive cooperation within the Security Council, including on the issue of North Korea in light of South Korea's joining in, a non, uh, in as a non-permanent uh, seat on the UN Security Council in 2024 and 2025. The ministry also said the two ministers discussed safety issues for Koreans residing in Russia and ways to address business challenges for Korean companies. While some Japanese media outlets, including NHK, reported previously that Kim Jong-un may depart for Russia for the North Korea and Russia summit, the spokesperson of the Defense Ministry of South Korea also responded to the speculation. Now, uh, during the regular briefing this morning, uh, to the spokesperson for the ministry, the ministry was assessing that Kim Jong-un may visit uh, Russia, and if he does visit, the ministry expects that he will plan to hold talks with the Russian president. And as of 5 p.m. today, following the briefing, the government announced that Kim Jong-un's personal train seemed to have departed Pyongyang to Vladivostok. A Russian news agency Interfax also cited a Kremlin announcement on the 11th local time earlier to det detail uh, the itinerary of Putin's two-day visit to the Far East region, though the official itinerary did not specifically include a meeting with Kim Jong-un. Yeah, anytime, I guess, Kim Jong-un does go overseas, the itinerary is going to be kind of shrouded in mystery as much as possible mm -hmm. is what it is. And I think uh, there was already reports earlier on that uh, Kim Jong-un was going to be going to 
uh, Vladivostok. And then, you know, even because we just got the information, right? right? Like it was like 5 p.m. Mm-hmm. We're all outside talking about random stuff. And we're like, uh-oh, uh, we got the report. And so it, whether to throw off the media, I think because his route was revealed, right? I mean, we got all these information from different sources and so forth. But it does seem like uh, Kim Jong-un did depart for Vladivostok and when the meeting and it uh, it will happen uh, later this week uh, we will get you guys all the latest information uh, on that uh, let's move on to some other issues here the World Heritage Committee likely to adopt a decision on the Hashima Islands in two years uh, previously in December of last year you had Japan uh, submitting the State of Conservation report concerning the inscription on the site of Japan's Meiji Industrial Revolution uh, it seems like that follow-up measures promised by Japan are not actually being implemented faithfully, which is why it was uh, criticized heavily by uh, previous uh, South Korean governments. Uh, the World Heritage Committee, on the other hand, recommending Japan to engage in dialogue with relevant countries, is, of course, uh, including South Korea. Minja, let's get the latest details on this. Sure. So UNESCO's World Heritage Committee will soon adopt a decision that strongly recommends Japan to engage in continuous dialogue with related countries, including South Korea, on sites of Japan's Meiji Industrial Revolution, where many Koreans and others were forced into labor. It has been confirmed that a decision with such detail has been proposed at the 45th 45th World Heritage Committee meeting that will be held until October 25th in Riyadh, South of Arabia. And according to the webpage of the World Heritage Committee and the diplomatic authorities, the World Heritage Committee, which is comprised of 21 countries, will assess Japan's conservation report on implementation of follow-up measures concerning the inscription of the sites of Japan's Meiji Industrial Revolution that Japan submitted in December last year and then adopt the decision. Two years have passed, and the World Heritage Committee is going to adopt a decision on whether Tokyo is preparing an interpretive strategy to understand the full history of each facility, including the Hashima Island or Battleship Island, where many Koreans were forced into labor. And even though Japan promised to install an information center to remember the victims, it was installed in Tokyo, not at the heritage site, and it also distorted the history through insufficient interpretive measures to understand that Koreans and others are brought against their will and forced to work, not to mention on the no display that serves the purpose of remembering the victims. The draft version of the decision encouraged Japan to engage in dialogue with related countries. Yeah, again, I mean, that's the world, I believe uh, the World Heritage Committee had a number of occasions told Japan, listen, you need to fix some of the things you didn't keep up with. Because the initial promise was, again, the whole thing with the the information center, right, to remember the victims. That was a big part of it because initially the big criticism was kind of this is actually a dark history, what we can call dark history, right, especially for the, the, the Koreans. And to kind of put this as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, a lot of people are saying, well, that's not fair. But as long as Japan later on agreed that, well, you know what? We'll put in all the information about the, the, the Korean victims and so forth. But it makes so sense if it's in Tokyo, right? Like you want the information, the information center 
in where the Hashima Island or the Battleship Island is located. So when tourists come in and they learn the history, that they learn what the proper news is and not where it's it's in Tokyo, where people are not going to randomly read that, right? And so, again, we'll see what happens. Uh, speaking of the Japanese government, though, the Japanese government is stepping up efforts to promote areas of disputed uh, that areas that are disputed with some of the other countries, this including our Tokto, uh, the Senkaku Islands or the Daiyu Islands, uh, which the Chinese call uh, the northern territories of the four islands uh, at the southern tip of the Kuril Islands, which is claimed are its territory as well. Yane, let's uh, get more on this. Right. So Yomiuri Shimbun reported yesterday that the Japanese government has allocated approximately three mi 300 uh, million yen, and that's $2 million, uh, to promote and distribute information related to the disputed areas in its budget bill for the next year. Now, this move comes after its national security strategy revision last December, uh, where the Japanese government stated that it would, quote, strengthen efforts to spread awareness on territorial and sovereignty issues. Now, in addition to Tokto, Japan, Japan is in conflict with China over the Senkaku or Daiyu, uh, Daoyu Islands and with Russia over the Kuril Islands. Now, information dissemination is to be done both domestically and internationally. Prominent foreign experts will be sent regular emails uh, summarizing Japan's views and the claim that Tokto and other islands are Japan's national territory. And domestically, seminars will be held for foreigners and the National Museum of Territory and Sovereignty in, interestingly enough, Tokyo, uh, will be renovated. Uh, the museum is a national exhibition facility which promotes Japan's views on the three disputed areas, and two years ago, it used to promote a video that made the ungrounded claim that Tokyo belongs to Japan and that future generations of the country will be able to visit the area someday. Now, even as the relations between South Korea and Japan have improved, uh, Japan has not budged on its claims to the islands. Now, this year, the Japanese government included this view in its foreign affairs and defense white papers, uh, for which South Korea's foreign ministry summoned officials from the Japanese embassy in Seoul to make a protest. Again, I mean, this issue with Tokto happens on an annual basis. The most upsetting thing a uh, few times was uh, during the Olympics, I believe. Uh, there was, uh, during the 2018 PyeongChang Winter Games, uh, one of the goalkeep goalies of the, the men's ice hockey team, uh, he was, I don't know, I forgot if it was an American or a Canadian that naturalized into, and he was playing for Team Korea. And his, because goalkeepers, goalies, they're allowed to design their face mask, right? And so they, what basically uh, he did was, it was in the design of uh, Admiral Lee Sun-jin. Mm. And Japan basically said that's a political statement. And for the goalie, he was like, no, I really just think that he was just a remarkable admiral. And being that, you know, the, the tactics and stuff like that as a military leader, I relate very closely. And then, well, Japan kind of took that into like a political statement. He was forced to not wear that mask. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the last summer games in Tokyo, uh, the maps that they used, they used Tokyo as part of their territory. And of course, when that was uh, considered a political statement and a false political statement. I don't think the IOC did anything about this, which is very, very upsetting when things are just kind of one-sided with things here, which mm -hmm. I think which shows 
where certain organizations like the IOC stand on the matter there. Uh, let's move on here, uh, talk about some domestic politics. Uh, President Yoon sung may be announcing a cabinet reshuffle uh, on Tuesday at the earliest. Now it sees he is back uh, from, again, his trips to uh, Jakarta and New Delhi. Uh, he's likely to decide on which ministers are going to be replaced with who. Uh, let's get more on this, Minji. Sure. So now that President Yoon Suk-yeol returned to South Korea following his week-long trip to attend the ASEAN and G20 summits, it is likely that he will carry out a cabinet reshuffle. And this appears to be part of Yoon administration's efforts to keep momentum for a general election next April. And according to the presidential office, President Yoon is set to revamp the cabinet later this week. It is reported that Yoon is considering to nominate Representative Shin Won-sik of the ruling People Power Party for defense minister. Representative Shin is a 65-year-old former deputy chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who accompanied President Yoon during his visit to July to Eastern European countries. And another candidate for the new cabinet is Yoo In-chun. He is President Yoon's special advisor for culture, sports, and tourism and formerly served as a culture minister during Lee Myung-bak's administration. So other possible reshuffles include gender equality minister Kim Hyun-suk, who has been subject to a state audit by the Board of Audit and Inspection since August for mishandling the World Scout Jamboree. It has been reported that President Yoon is Ain Kim Heng, a former presidential spokesperson for the Park Geun-hye administration, as Kim Hyun-suk's successor. Some say, minister, uh, some say that the Minister of Science and ICT, Lee Jong-ho, could also be replaced. Yoon is also considering to replace two senior defense officials in his office, uh, Im Jong-duk, the Deputy National Security Advisor, with In Sung-han, former president of Joint Forces Military University, while Im Gi-hun, the Presidential Secretary for National Defense, is said to be succeeded by Che Bong-uk, Head of Net Defense Policy Bureau at the Ministry of National Defense. So if the new nominees are confirmed later this week, a parliamentary hearing may be convened before the National Assembly's Audit of State Affairs, which is to begin in mid-October. Yeah, so again, we have, I've been mentioning this for some time now, the big political event is next year in April, the general election, where you have the PPP. PPP is the ruling power, uh, party right now, but... The DP, the main opposition DP, still has the majority at the National Assembly. And so that's been the biggest obstacle for the ruling party at this time. And so what they're trying to do now is basically do what the DP had for some years now when they were also the ruling party and also at the majority at the National Assembly where they're just passing everything left and right and the PPP just had no power. And so they're trying to take back the National Assembly. So they're trying to replace any sort of uh, ministers who may have been controversial, this including the uh, gender minister in Kim Hyun-soo. But... The interesting fact is that th although there is some, I guess, President Yoon is considering replacing two senior defense officials, no mention of Defense Minister uh, uh, Lee Jong-sup because uh, Defense Minister Lee Jong-sup is now being a target of impeachment from the DP lawmakers because of the mishandling of one of the Marine Corps uh, soldiers that uh, died during the rescue operations, right? Uh, I believe it was in Yecheon County, I believe, one of the streams where uh, they found that the, the Marine uh, 
did not have a life vest on and so they were saying what was going on and so forth but still uh, we are seeing some reshuffling we did see some reshuffling in other uh, ministries as well uh, speaking of DP we're gonna turn to the latest on the foreign presidential candidate and the current head uh, chief of the Democratic Party, Lee Jae-myung, uh, who's been on a hunger strike since uh, the end of August in front of the National Assembly at Yeoido. Uh, the prosecution's questioning of E on illicit money transfers to North Korea has ended early due to health concerns. Uh, Yane, let's get more on this. Sure. So the questioning of South Korea's main opposition Democratic Party leader Lee Jae-myung at Suwon District Prosecutor's Office over allegations he participated in illegally uh, sending money to North Korea had to be cut short on Saturday. Now, this was due to concerns over Lee's health as he has been on a hunger strike that has stretched, uh, stretched into its 10th day. While Lee quoted multiple reasons for his going on a hunger strike, he was being questioned about uh, Sangbangul group, an underwear manufacturer that allegedly transferred 8 million U.S. dollars to North Korea illegally uh, between January 2019 and January 2020 at the request of Lee Hwa-young, the former vice governor of Gyeonggi-do province. Now, DP leader Lee was the governor of the province at the time, and the prosecution views the company's action as third-party bribery. Prosecutors were questioning the DP leader about his knowledge of the matter and whether he was was involved as he has uh, as has been alleged. Uh, now they have requested that the questioning be resumed on the 12th, to which the spokesperson of the party responded today that Lee will attend the questioning as per their request. Yeah, and so initially when uh, Lee Jae-myung was uh, taking part in this hunger strike, that was the criticism from the ruling PPP lawmakers in that this is a distraction from the uh, prosecution question, uh, uh, questioning by the prosecutors and so forth. And he, of course, said, no, 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 no. I'm going to take part in the question. I think uh, one of the things there was supposed to be questioning that was supposed to take place last week, which he cited scheduling, right? He mm -hmm. said, I only have like two hours in the morning or something like that. And so I can't give you the entire day. And the prosecutors were basically then, we can't question you then. Uh, we're going to have to set up another date. And it was supposed to be over the weekend where he said, well, you know, the uh, sessions, uh, the, the, what is it, the, uh, the, the, the plenary sessions over at the National Assembly is done and over with by the 9th. And so I'll take part in it. And so now citing the health issues now, uh, now he can't take part in it. And so now uh, the PPP, of course, going to say, see what I said? I mean, you're using the hunger strike to kind of avoid uh, prosecution right now. But again, this is another issue that we're going to keep a close tab on. But for now, guys, thank you very much for your report. Have a safe one. And we'll see you guys again. Thank, thank you. you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.